Street Journal reporter Josh Mitchell talks about the growing debt for parents and students with NPR education reporter Anya Kamenetz. The important thing to know is that having a student loan program on the government's books looked very expensive. And so Lyndon Johnson came up with this idea, and it wasn't just him, there were others, but basically his idea was, let's just have banks make loans to students. Therefore, no no money has to come out of the treasury, at least on the front end. More in a moment. I'm so excited for this conversation, Josh. This is awesome. Same same here, same here. Definitely. Um, so, you know, uh, you've written this book, The Debt Trap. Um, it's a really impressive, really comprehensive book. And you mentioned that you did eight years of research on it. And I just want to know, like, what sucked you in? Well, it was actually almost nine years, I guess, because it was in 2012. Um, I was just an economics reporter at the time. And I, as part of a uh, you know, uh, a story I was doing on deadline, the CFPB, this consumer agency put out this report or this consumer financial protection agency put out this report saying student debt exceeded one trillion. And so I just wrote a standard story that said that. And I got a ton of attention. The story got a ton of attention. A lot of readers clicked on it, started to email me. Um, and just from there, I just wanted to write more and more about it, um, about why student debt was rising, what was driving that. And the more I wrote about it, it was kind of like a snowball effect. I would have more and more people write to me. And there was so much money involved, you know, a, a lot of money going to colleges and a lot of students taking out money in the form of debt. And so as a reporter, whenever there's a lot of money involved, there's always a lot of stories to write. And so just the more I wrote about it, the more um, I wanted to write more about it. Absolutely. Totally get that. Yeah. The, the numbers are pretty eye popping and, and that 1 trillion has now become 1.6 trillion, right? Yep. Closely getting, closely getting to 2, 2 trillion. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the most entertaining parts of this book is kind of the early years and you go into the kind of, I would say comedy of errors that brought us here. Nobody intended for the student loan program to look the way that it looks today. And, and that's something that I've learned myself as a reporter um, you know, and uh, can you can you just dig in a little bit in, into this comedy of errors and why it looks the way it does and also how a murder plays a role into this? Right. So, you know, first of all, I'm glad you liked the early history because I was really concerned that people would be bored by the history. But the more I wrote about it, the more I found it so interesting. And so the book starts with Sputnik. Um, yeah. Sputnik was this kind of like crisis um, that happened when the Soviet Union launched um, Sputnik into space. And that really kickstarted this conversation within Congress. Lyndon Johnson was the Senate majority leader at the time. And there were a lot of other members of Congress at the time who were concerned about this, um, about the fact that the Soviet Union was overtaking us in the space race. And so this really, uh, you know, started this intense conversation about how do we regain the lead? excuse me, the lead in the space race. And um, one of the first things Congress did was to create a, uh, a student loan program, not a huge student loan program, not, not one that's as big as the one that we have now. But basically the idea was, let's try and get more scientists in, um, into college, or let's try and train more people to become scientists through college. And so the goal was kind of a, um, kind of a very specific goal at that point. It wasn't everyone needs to go to college and we need to make sure everyone has the option to go to college. It was more like, let's get more scientists and so that we can beat the Soviet Union in the space race. And then from there, 
very quickly, higher education became linked with this goal of, you know, trying to reduce inequality in the United States. Um, Lyndon Johnson made this part of his great society programs um, where he really wanted anyone who needed a loan to have a loan. And I think every step along the way, there were good intentions. But the way Congress designed this program, I don't even think they knew what they were doing a lot of the time. It was just kind of like, let's take this noble goal of expanding access to higher education. Let's do it in the cheapest way we can think of. And I think that was the tension. It was like, let's do something that, you know, is a really big noble goal, but let's like try to do it in the most affordable way, cheapest way possible. And that's where problems started to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what's super interesting about it. Right. Because, um, uh, there are these generous intentions, and I think you mentioned LBJ had his own personal experience with student loans, and he was a teacher as well, an educator. Yeah, so yeah, right. Really cared about education getting to the the less the least served, but at the same time, the government didn't want to have this debt on its books, right? They yep. didn't want to yep. account for the true cost. And so then, what ended up happening? How did it create this huge profit center for for uh, private industry? Okay, so is it okay if I geek out a little bit? I want to geek out. Where else are okay. you going to not seek scan? Come on. Okay. Okay, great. That's that that's actually very true. Okay, so here is what's interesting. Um federal spending was rising really quickly in the 60s. Part of that was the Vietnam War was happening. Another part of that was Lyndon Johnson as part of his great society programs had really expanded the role of Congress and Washington in all these facets of life. And so we're talking this about Medicare, was we're talking about, totally. uh, you know, uh, well, there was the, go on. Well, there's also the uh, K through 12, the secondary, the primary and secondary uh, school bill that expanded yes, aid to, to K through yeah. 12 schools. So yeah, yeah, there was a lot of stuff going on. And, and Lyndon Johnson, you know, it's interesting when he studied the characters, he was kind of this impatient guy. Like he had these goals and ever since apparently he was in college, he was just always in a rush. And um, so he really wanted to solve inequality and, and address these big societal problems in a really quick way. Again, good intentions, but one of the things I've learned is if you do it too quickly, problems start to start to come up. Mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, why did the banks get involved? This is a very key turning point in the student loan program. The, the federal deficit was rising very quickly because of all of this spending. And so there was a concern, as there, as there has been over the past 20 or 30 years, that if the deficit rises, there could be all these other things that happen that could affect the broader economy. There was this thinking that a big deficit is bad. Um, and so if you had a student loan program, the way the government did accounting, this is, I'm, I'm geeking out here, but it's important. Yeah. The way the government did accounting was if you generated a billion dollars in student debt, let's just say you gave students a billion dollars in one year, federal spending would rise up by that um, by that um, uh, by that much. And in then when in that one year. So the program looked very expensive when you gave students loans and. When students paid them back 10 years out or whatever, then spending would go down because that would be counted as income. Anyways, mm -hmm. the important thing to know is that having a student loan program on the government's books looked very expensive. And so Lyndon Johnson came up with this idea, and it wasn't just him, there were others, but basically his idea was, let's just have banks make loans to students. Therefore, no, no money has to come out of the treasury, at least on the front end. And so if banks are doing it, 
um, then it'll be off our books. And therefore, uh, the, de the federal de deficit will be unscathed. And so this sounded great at the start, but banks don't do things for the good of their heart. They want to make money. And so banks basically said, look, if you want us to do this, this, this is what's interesting. Banks ended up making a lot of money in the long run. But at the start, they like didn't want to get into the business of student lending. Because, um, because it's it's money to an 18 year old. There's no collateral. And maybe they graduate. Maybe they don't. So it's an unknown risk. It's not like a mortgage where you kind of know what's going to happen. Um, and yeah, and exactly. It's expanding access to lending. So I think you can also draw a parallel, right, with the government sponsored entities like Fannie yep. Mae, Freddie Mac. Right, right, exactly. Um, and, and, and that that is a very good point. There was already a model that existed going back to the Great Depression, where the government, um, because of what was happening in the Great Depression, with the housing market and everything else, really started to try to use taxpayer money to incentivize banks to make home loans to households. Um, and so there was already this existing model, and LBJ wanted to basically adopt that model, model for student lending. Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening in the name of reducing federal spending, he actually, he and Congress actually increased federal spending because in order to get banks to make loans to students, not only did he have to say taxpayers would cover the loss whenever students failed to repay, Congress actually had to guarantee banks a profit. Um, so it was like sort of a double form of insurance. Like not only are you agreeing to cover any losses, you're actually going beyond that and saying, we will pay you for every student loan you hold. And so the it, it ended up becoming a very expensive program in the long run. But um, when you're passing the, the federal bu budget each year, it looks it looks like a smaller hit in that year because all of these subsidies you're giving the banks plus the potential losses that you're going to accrue when students don't pay, those don't show up all at once. They show up over a long period. And so it looked cheaper in the short run to do it this way. It actually created a whole ton of problems in the long run. Yeah, because it created a heads I win, tails you lose system. And talk about who showed up at the casino to make all that money. Talk about Al Lord and talk about Sally Mae. Oh, goodness. Well, so first of all, let me just say this. Um, can I step back and yeah, so so let's talk about Sally May. So well, what ended up happening in the 60s is the government said, you know, we will insure all of these loans. Now, Congress set the interest rate at, at which student loans would carry, right? Yeah. And so Congress would cover part of that interest while students were in school. And then after school, students were supposed to pay the interest themselves. And that would go to the banks to reimburse the banks for you know, extending these loans. Inflation was rising at this point to the extent that that really drove up the overall costs of banks. And so they kept on going to Congress saying, we need a higher interest rate. We need to be paid more. If you want us to continue to make student loans, we need more money from you. And so legitimate because interest rates were yep. going up. Inflation yep. was going up. The cost yep. of borrowing was going up. These were like, this is yep. the 70s. It's like mortgages are 14%. It's crazy, right? Totally. Totally. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, the whole purpose of banks is to make a profit. And so, again, you know, Lyndon Johnson, you know, is, is saying make loans and they're saying, give us more money and we will. So they and the problem was, is Congress kept on raising interest rate, infl inflation kept on going higher. And so it was like sort of like this, you know, it kept on going on and on. And so finally they said, OK, here's what we're going to do. In 1972, we will create a for-profit corporation called Sally May, 
But it not only is it a for profit, not it's not just a for profit corporation. It's actually going to have access to super cheap money from the Treasury Department. And they will um, use that super cheap money to give to banks, which could then give to students. And then Sally May, the, the way they gave this money to banks is they would buy existing loans off of the bank's books. So anytime a bank made a loan to a student, Sally May would swoop in really quickly, buy that loan off of the bank, and then hold the loan. Or Sally May would also actually make just loans to banks. And so Sally May had all of the powers, almost all of the powers of the Treasury Department, but none of the, but it was a for-profit corporation. And this was the mother of moral hazards. I mean, of everything Congress has ever done, I think this is one of the 10 most weirdest things Congress has ever done. Think about this. Guess who owns Sally May? Uh, banks and schools. Mm-hmm. So you're basically, you know, it's like the fox living in the hen house, not just watching the hen house. I mean, the the institutions that that, you know, needed to make money and wanted to make money suddenly had access to all this Treasury Department money, no risk whatsoever, through this really odd beast called Sal- Sally May. Um, and so I'll stop there uh, because it's just a long story. And I'm curious if you, you know, what what you want to know more about them. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so we're, we're talking about moral hazards. We're talking about unintended consequences. And just to catch us up here. So federal government wants to send more kids to college, but doesn't really want to pay for it, but doesn't want to be seen paying for it. So they create yeah. this little bit of a shell game so that they're putting the yep. money up, but they're not, they're not, it doesn't, it's not on their books. Then Sally Mae gets created as an entity to basically, uh, their profits are guaranteed, their losses are guaranteed, their losses are erased. And they have every power the federal government has. They have federal government money at federal government rates. Now a new set of actors comes in and these are the colleges themselves, right? And they're, they were supposed to have skin in the game, right? And, and talk about that and talk about what, what happened instead. Right. So right around this time, there was this big debate going on in Washington about how the country should finance higher education. Yeah. This was kind of a parallel debate about whether Sally May needed to get involved. And um, the discussion is really a lot like the discussion we're having now, which is, um, should the country have free college or should we continue just to give students what is essentially a voucher, which, you know, by voucher, I mean like a student loan. Right yeah. now, the policy is you know, you have a student loan and or a Pell Grant, and you can use that as a voucher to go to any school you want to go to. Well, back in the late 60s, there was this big debate about which system was better. And the and and, and ultimately, the Johnson administration, including um, an economist named Alice Rivlin, who ended up being this really big time economist here. She's no longer here, but um, she helped dis- decide what to do here. And the idea was, if you give students a voucher, colleges will be forced to compete over that voucher. And so therefore, that will force them to keep their prices in check. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> right. So So they wanted to treat college like um, any other marketplace. Like if you were in the market for, I don't know, apples or books, you know, you want companies to compete over customers. And so companies have to become very creative in how they run things and what they offer, the, the quality of the product that they're offering. And they also have to compete on price. The opposite happened in the eighties. Colleges very quickly learned that, um, 
actually, if you charge higher prices, students will think you're a higher quality school. And so colleges, instead of competing on price, competed on prestige. And there's this notion that um, that that's, it's called the Chivas-Regal effect. It, it refers to a whiskey. Um, it's this theory that says, you know, if you're a consumer and you go into a store and you're and you're in the market to buy to buy a whiskey, and you see two brands on the shelf, one is cheaper and one is more expensive, um, you are automatically going to assume that the more expensive one is the higher quality one, and so you're actually more willing if you're if you're looking for a high quality whiskey to pay more money, even if you have, even if it's not necessarily uh, a, a good product, you're still going to end up paying for it, and that's what happened in the '80s with colleges. And again, so they started to raise their prices and they were abetted by the student loan program because all of a sudden schools are raising their prices. How do students pay for those prices if uh, tuition is rising faster than family income? Well, the loans filled that gap. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, and, and it's it's also probably worth noting that the, the economics of higher education are extremely complicated, right? Like they mm-hmm. are, they have other streams of even federal funding. They've got research funding. They had, you know, they have public funding at their public institutions. And so they're, they're assembling all of these. And I think there's some theories that say that basically colleges raise all the money they can and they spend all the money they raise. Yes. Um, and, and we're not even talking about for-profits. I mean, talk about, talk about what happened in the for-profit sector. Totally. So, well, because you had these vouchers where students could uh, use them anywhere they wanted, The public school system wasn't really keeping up with growth and the number of students. Um, There was a lot of there were a lot of schools being built at this time to accommodate the fact that more and more people were entering college. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing happened uh, that led to the rise of for profit colleges. A lot of schools either weren't growing quickly enough to absorb uh, these students, or they were, but they wanted to become more selective in who they allowed in. Okay. And and so um, for-profit schools, I'm sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no. I oh. mean, I just, I just wanted to bring in some demographic picture into this, right? Like, so we're talking about 70s, 80s, you got more women trying to go to college. You got more members of racial minorities finishing high school and trying to get into college. You got the job market changing, so more people need some college education. And- 70s and 80s was a retrenchment in public spending. So these community colleges that have been growing, they're not growing fast enough for all of this demand. Right. And and also um, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's really important here. The 19, the early 80s recession is really when the college wage premium opened up. I mean, it went like this where you had uh-huh. you had um, college, the wages of college graduates shooting up and the wages of non-graduates shooting down over the next 10 years or so. This and is because, actually, of, because of Reagan's union busting. It's because of the decline in manufacturing. Um, and it's because of the transition to the knowledge-based economy. So it's... it's Totally, totally. I mean, if you think about all these tech companies, they started getting started in the 80s. Yeah. And um, the, the early 80s recession itself, uh, a lot of businesses had held off investment during that era of high inflation. Mm-hmm. As soon as Paul Volcker and the Fed um, conquered inflation hmm. and, brought in, and brought inflation down, businesses started to invest again. Um, and equipment and computer technology or what have you. And so you, um, you, these companies suddenly needed workers who were more skilled to operate this new tech. Um, and yes, all the other factors that you just said were at play here as well. And so this is when 
demand for college graduates really went up and demand for non-graduates started going down, which but, meant there was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But like you just said, the public colleges don't necessarily want to open the doors to these newer untested students because what are they doing? They're climbing the prestige ladder and they want to advertise that they have a better graduation rate and a, and a lower acceptance rate. And so they're not necessarily making spots for these students. Right. And same with private colleges. Um, I mean, private colleges actually were doing more of that. They were sort of the first ones to engage in this prestige game. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so, you know, uh, so what ended up happening is that th- there were these for-profit colleges started to crop up going after G- GI uh, people with a GI bill, bill money, um, you know, who vets, vets who came back from the Vietnam War, who had GI bill money, as well as student loan money and grants. And so there are all these for-profit colleges that cropped up. Um, partly they wanted to, or in large part, a lot of them wanted to take advantage of all this money that the government was putting in the hands of students. But they also were serving a purpose in that um, if you are a blue-collar worker in the middle of the country and maybe you don't live near a public co- to, to your college or you can't, you don't have the grades to get into a, a four-year college, or maybe you're 35 years old and, you know, you just don't have any higher education training whatsoever, but you want to go back and learn new skills. Well, these for-profit colleges started to sort of fill in some of the gaps that were left with um, that were left by the public system or the nonprofit system. And so um, every, I mean, just going back to the first GI Bill, for-profit colleges cropped up really quickly, and there was a big default crisis after that. This is after World War II. Yeah. Same thing that happened in the '70s with the Vietnam War. The government expands its its aid to veterans and schools crop up. Um, there was a for-profit crisis in the 80s. It was one of the most fascinating things I found in reporting this book is that a lot of the problems that we've seen over the past 15 years happened on a smaller scale um, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. That is super interesting, right? So so these colleges crop up. They're basically, I mean, they're, they're taking advantage of the fire hose of money from the government. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And- what are some of their really predatory practices? Well, there were these schools called correspondence schools. They're basically like online schools before online schools where they would like mail you like, you know, stuff to, you know, read and, and do, do homework on. And then, you know, um, they would charge, they would charge a, a lot of money um, and students, you know, and they were, they told students they would, have a really good shot of getting a job afterwards. And then this, a lot of times the students couldn't find work and then they would default on their loans. But again, the way Sally May and the student loan program was set up, these schools really didn't suffer consequences when their students failed. And this is what I mean by the unintended consequences of this program is schools got to keep the money up front in a lot of cases. Um, and students either were on the hook for that money or taxpayers were on the hook for that money. And so, um, but a lot of the, a lot of the problems that you hear about for profit schools now were going on back then. Yeah. 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 And they, they have not been reined in because we haven't changed the fundamental structure. Of how. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you had asked something, a couple of questions earlier that I think applies here. And I wanted to, I wanted to mention this when you say, Colleges in general, whether it's for-profit colleges or state colleges or private colleges, you know, have they have enough skin in the game? Um, one of the things I discovered is before the government got into student lending, a lot of colleges themselves would make loans to their students. Yeah. 
Um, and therefore, if because it was the college's money, if the student defaulted, the college would have to eat those losses or at least some of those losses. Mm-hmm. Default and that's a good for- alignment of incentives, right? Because if you, you want to provide a program that's giving value to your students and stand by your yes. product. Exactly. I've always, I've always asked college presidents this, you know, if you're so confident in the product you're providing, then like, why do you need the government to give you so much loan money? Why don't you put up some of your own loan money, use some of your endowment money and, you know, um, lend to your students. If you're so confident, they're going to, you know, come out and get a great job and, you know, be really highly paid afterward, then, you know, share some of that risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were doing that. There was this program and it was a very, the default rates were very low. And actually, one of the reasons why Congress um, agreed to create the very first loan program is because uh, this um, official from the University of Minnesota, he told Congress, uh, you know, loans are a good investment for students because they default at very low rates. Um, But again, I think that's because one of the reasons is that schools were on the hook if students defaulted on their loans. As soon as you, you know, take the risk off of schools of suffering any losses, I think that's when a lot of the programs started to arise. Um, I, I agree with you there, although a point that you also made that I think is really important to bring in here is that, um, you know, college education is not just a financial investment, not just, not just a financial instrument, but it's also a public good. And so when universities made personal decisions about who to lend to, didn't they oftentimes choose people that yep. looked like perhaps the university administrators, right? People that came from good families that were white, perhaps yep. male, right? And choosing lucrative specialties as well. Yeah, this is the ultimate tension um, of of any type of loan program like this. Yes, there was a private sector loan program before Lyndon Johnson's program was passed by Congress in 1965, and it was growing really quickly. But you had, for example, um, a dean from Howard University, uh, a historically black college here in D.C., um, tell Congress, look, this program's great, except a lot of our students don't have access to it. You know, a lot of our our, our black students um, just don't banks aren't making them loans. And so while this program is serving a lot of people, um, it's not serving everyone, including some of the people that need loans the most. And so, again, that was the big tension behind whether you have a program with underwriting standards or a program that restricts who can get loans versus this federal program where Linda Johnson said, wait a minute. Let's have everyone who's everyone um, have access to a loan. And so we've never resolved that question, I think, um, as uh, or, or Congress has never resolved that question of at what point are you helping students versus harming students by giving them loans if you know that they're very likely to default on them? On the one hand, if you give everyone a loan, you are expanding access. On the other hand, you are inevitably sending, setting up a lot of families to default down the, down the line if you don't look at things like how able are they going to be able to repay this loan if it's $50,000 versus what their income is. Um, that's That's been a tension throughout the whole history of this program. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it also, I mean, it layers on to kind of, I mean, higher education in general, like who needs a credential to get their foot in the door versus who is someone that that hiring managers will take a chance on. And so we've seen that, you know, Women are really striving to to achieve more and more higher education, but they're not seeing that pay off in in pay, um, you know, commensurate pay. Same thing for um, Black women in particular who are getting a lot of PhDs, but not necessarily get, seeing the payoffs. Um, so there's there's these inequities across society and in what higher education diploma actually means for people. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and and you know, I think this is important. When the program got started, um, when when Lyndon Johnson's uh, program got started in 1965, Congress and and President Johnson would say that they wanted poor people, modest income people, to have their education covered by grants. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that like everyone should have a huge loan was not the intent of the program. But again, what ended up happening is to, to cover students' education with grants, Congress thought that that was too expensive. And so loans became the easy option. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, we have this goal, but when the rubber hit the road and they looked at how much it would cost, they're like, you know what, let's just get the funds. And that happened more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And, and it happens now. Um, and so every year or every time that they reauthorize the Higher, Higher Education Act, you know, they talk about Pell Grants, which are intended to be scholarship money that doesn't have to be repaid um, for modest income students. But Congress never really increased the Pell Grant over time. I mean, they they did, but it didn't increase nearly as quickly as schools were increasing their prices. And so, you know, there's been this growing gap between what the Pell Grant covers and what you know, poor and modest income families' um, ability to pay is. So um, loans just became the easy option to fill that gap. <clears throat> right. It's also fair to note that, I mean, it's hard to subsidize your way into affordability if higher education institutions have impunity yes. to keep rising prices, right? Yes. Yes. Um, exactly. This is all about, a lot of this is risk. It's like, you know, how do you build in risk so that you don't create this moral hazard of colleges just having the incentive to raise prices the more that the government puts into families' hands? Right, right. And I'll, 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 we're going to talk about this later, but just to leap ahead for a sec, like this was a problem with free college proposals like Bernie Sanders because it was like, well, we'll just we'll subsidize college to be free for everyone everywhere. But, you know, some states are subsidizing public education at a much higher rate than others. So you kind of are, you're leveling the playing field at the, at the expense of the places that had been making a better effort to do it already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, this would probably be a great place to pivot and, and tell one of the stories of borrowers and, and really bring it home to what the impact actually is on people um, of this uh, kind of mess of a program. Yeah. So the main character in my book, it's a woman who's a single mother of two in, in Pennsylvania and she was a secretary in the early 1990s. Um, and she really felt like she was in a dead-end job. And again, based on the statistics that I said earlier, she basically was. If you looked at what was happening with the, the wages of non-graduates, they were going down. And she was feeling that. Um, and so she had this epiphany one day after work. She said, I'm tired of living this lifestyle. Um, she was in her mid to late 20s at the time. And she said, I'm, I'm going to go to college. You know, college is clearly the answer. Um, and so she worked in a law firm at the time as a secretary, and across the street from her law firm was this private college called Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, it's it's a it's a middle tier college, um, solid. It wasn't a for profit school, but it also wasn't like this prestigious, you know, Princeton University. It was, it was close to her work, and it was very convenient. And so she walked across the street one day after lunch, um, and they said, yes, we'd love to enroll you. And it was like clockwork. I mean, you just basically sign, you know, she said, like, I don't have money to pay for this. And they say, basically, don't worry here. Um, you can take out student loans. And this is a good investment. This is good debt. And she, she said she didn't think twice about it. And then lo and behold, she wanted to be a psychologist in New Jersey. And so um, she learned relatively quickly that um, in the state of New Jersey, 
Um, she, she worked in New Jersey, but she was from Pennsylvania. So that's why I mentioned two different states, um, that she had to, um, get a PhD. And because this was state licensing, state licensing rules required her to get, get a PhD. So just to pursue her dream of becoming a psychologist, she would essentially need like eight to 10 years of schooling between graduate school, um, PhD, and undergraduate. And that ended up being really expensive. But again, each year she would just sign the paperwork that was required to get a student loan. They did no credit check or any, there was no review of like how much she would earn afterward and whether the debt she was earning was too high. Um, lo and behold, she comes out of school in the early 2000s with uh, $120,000 in debt. And um, a quarter of that was, or about a fifth of that was interest only because the government, again, had been charging all of this interest, including while she was in school, in part to reimburse the banks and Sally May, who was her lender. And so she had this huge bill and it was just like quicksand. Um, she, she kept on paying month after month and it just wasn't going down. She had to take one year, she used forbearance, which is this option of you know suspending payments because her uh, estranged husband at the time had stopped paying child support. She had two young children and life happened. You know, it was either that or one time a, a tree fell on her house during a storm and the insurance didn't cover all the damage and she had to pay for that. But this whole time she's paying money toward her loans. And it got to the point where after 17 years, she still owed $100,000, even though she had basically paid back uh, all of the money that she originally borrowed, the interest had been accruing and this was a 30 year loan. And she just couldn't keep up with the bill. So she filed for bankruptcy and the government fought for her for two years. And I'll haul it off and tell you, telling you what the final outcome is, because that's the end of the book. But um, I just think it was a good example of someone who was really trying to do everything right, who was really putting her faith in all of these big institutions, whether it was her college or grad school or Congress itself, yeah. and and just really, really was working hard to make things right. And it really ended up um, harming her in the long run. <clears throat> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's something that really hit home to me. And, um, I mean, I think this is probably the moment to mention that I also wrote a student debt book. Um, mm -hmm. and what's so remarkable, right. Is it came up 15 years ago and so much has happened since then, but it was already that the time that I was writing about was when student loans had flipped from being fewer than half of all undergraduates to about two thirds of all undergraduates in about a you know, seven, eight year period. So it was really the beginning, but we were already kind of seeing some of these issues and problems coming up. And I'm curious, uh, kind of like what your thoughts are about how the politics of student loans changed during the financial crisis and then um, kind of occupied debt, student debt, and how they became a bigger and bigger um, issue on the national political scene. Right. So I think up until the Great Recession, loans were, again, seen as like this investment. And I think some people were complaining about student debt, but really loans were seen as the ticket to the middle and upper class. You know, um, it was a I good investment. That, just like, I was it was I'm a little bitter because people were definitely like, this is not a big deal. Millennials are so entitled. Why are you complaining about this? you know, debt is all good. And there was this, this mentality at the time. I mean, people were buying houses with 0% down. They were like, hey, your salary is going to be great with a bachelor's degree. So why are you even complaining? And never is there a mention of the people that don't finish their degrees, right? The yep. people that are most likely to default are not people with $100,000, as horrible as that is, but the people with 
a few thousand dollars and no degree. So we saw the seeds of this before the financial crisis. It was part of the financial crisis. This whole mentality of, of free money was part yeah. of the financial crisis and that we're going to patch the holes in the social safety net with cheap lending instead of actually spending, which in your telling goes all the way back to the war on poverty, which is fascinating. Well, totally. And also the 1990s, I think, is really when this whole idea of consumer debt sort of took off. And it was interesting. I kind of point out somewhat of, I guess it's an irony that during the Clinton administration, you know, there was this huge focus on on reducing the federal de de deficit and debt at the federal level. But then like telling consumers, oh, getting into debt for houses and college is great, you know, and it was like, one form of debt was considered really bad. Another form of debt was considered this great investment. Um, and that was one of the reasons why, you know, Congress, you know, sort of expanded these loan programs, whether it was for home lending or at least expanded its um, presence in these loan markets um, was because, again, they they saw like this form of debt as good debt. And and you see this consumer debt really started to take off in the, in the 90s and especially in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, and again, in the 90s, when I grew up, um, it college was just seen as like you just had to go. Um, and the more schooling you got, the the higher your chances were of getting a good job. And there just wasn't any question about whether college was, was a risky investment or not. Um, and so the Great Recession, I think, is when all these forces kind of converged. Yeah. Um, you had tuition that had been rising at like triple the rate of inflation for 30 years. So like it had gotten at a really hold high on, level. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Triple the rate of inflation I for know. 30 years. Like, yeah. it's just, you got to take a moment. Yes. It's insane. <laughs> um, and not only that, but like textbook prices were also, I mean, it's just like, there's these other fees and prices that we don't even think about aside from tuition. And um, they had been skyrocketing and again, they had been rising faster than median income. And so whenever that happens, you have to find some way to pay for it and do student debt became the way to fill that gap. And so that had been happening and, and finally tuition had, had got to a very high level. Then the great recession happens. Um, the Great Recession was just, I mean, as most people, if not everyone who's watching this knows, was this really severe uh, severe downturn. And it was a collapse. It was a complete collapse of the banking sector. Um, the, we, we could have lost the entire economy. There was this, you know, these massive banks failed and we had to bail them out with trillions of dollars, trillions and trillions of dollars. Yes. And President Obama comes in in 2009. And his first speech to Congress, he basically says, we still have hope. Uh, we are going to get over this mess that was caused by this reckless lending in housing. And we're going to do this by, in part, having everyone go to college. And he asked <laughs> everyone, he literally asked everyone, said, I think it's your duty, you know, to spend at least a year in college. Now, he didn't say it needs to be four-year college, he didn't say grad school, but he did ask every American to spend at least one year in higher education. Um, Huh. And he, he set this bold goal. It was like, you know, we've lost the global lead in having the most educated workforce. We used to have that in the early 90s. Yeah. And he said, we want to regain this lead uh, by 2020 because mm -hmm. other countries like South Korea had surpassed us in that measure. 
And so he was kind of like LBJ, where he was worried about like other countries surpassing us. LBJ was worried about the Soviet Union. Barack Obama was like worried about South Korea and other emerging countries that, um, you know, were really getting more educated workers. And so he said, let's let's expand the number of people who are going to college and grad school. And he recognized that there were some problems with student loans. So, you know, I, I my chapter in my book that deals with Barack Obama, I think it it it's an interesting chapter because it's kind of tough, but it's also I try to I try to maintain my standard of tough but fair. Um, he he recognized a lot of problems with student lending, and he had a lot of ideas to fix some of those problems. But he did really buy into this notion that college is this great investment that everyone should take part in. And inherently, that would require an increase in student loans. So getting back to the Great Recession, which lasted through 2009, but even after 2009, the unemployment rate, even when we were technically recovering as an economy, the unemployment rate was very high. And young people, people in their 20s, you know, um, certain groups were really hit hard by this. And so you had this boom in higher education enrollment, which it wasn't mostly Obama's, it wasn't because of what he said, just because the economy was so weak and there weren't jobs available, there were a lot of people who said, okay, now's a good time to go to school. And so there was like this really historic increase in college and graduate school enrollment um, around that time. I mean, just millions of people going into school in part because they couldn't find jobs. And on top of that, they're being told by the president and everyone else that you know college is still a great investment. We need you to go to school. Um, so just as tuition is has hit like an all-time high just as college enrollment is surging which means more and more and more people are not only going to school but taking out loans to do so then they come out a lot of these people come out in 2010 2011 2012 with all of the student debt and they still can't find jobs or the jobs that they can't find don't require a degree and don't pay as nearly as much as they thought they would be earning and so or a lot of people drop out as you said and so this was like the perfect storm. Um, and you just had tons and tons of people who were now carrying a lot of debt, um, couldn't pay it off, and really felt like they were lied to or misled by whoever, whether it was their schools, whether it was Congress or whoever. And um, that really set up sort of like the biggest part of the student loan crisis. That's really when it kind of started. It was building to a head, and then that's what it happened. Yeah, well, and also the public perception of it as a crisis, right? Um, because, you know, you had waves of people before. You had veterans, you had homeless people, you had, you know, people that had tried and failed to succeed in higher ed. And now it's it's kind of burst in the public consciousness. And, you know, if we can bring it up to the present day a little bit, like, so we had Occupy Wall Street. We talked about student debt as a political issue. It was a political issue, a surprisingly popular one, right, in, in the 2016 and 2020 Democratic presidential campaigns. Um And then the pandemic hit and the pandemic, unlike the last recession, has not led to an increase in college enrollment, right? Right, right. Well, in part because, you know, colleges are where a lot of people live and meet. And so this pandemic was interesting because it really hit those industries or those institutions that large people gather in. And so, yes, uh, there, there was not, uh, there was actually a drop in enrollment in college this time around. And the other thing is, uh, Congress and the Trump administration and then the Biden administration decided to suspend everyone's payments or most people's payments who have student loans. Yeah. Um, and so what's interesting is just to take a step back for a second, when Barack Obama came into office, they passed this huge stimulus package. And part of that 
was giving people Pell Grants, increasing Pell Grants and, um, and, and expanding or increasing access to loans or ensuring that there was continued access to loans, which was in part designed to stimulate spending in the economy to help the economy recover. This time around, instead of you know, um, giving people access to loans and requiring payments, um, Congress actually said, we will suspend your payments. And that was used as a tool to stimulate the economy. So for the past year and a half through September, students will have not been making any payments on their student loans. And so, yes, the politics of students that have really shifted. Um, the idea that, you know, anyone is on any, anyone from either party, from either major party is, you know, except for Bernie Sanders is on board with debt cancellation has been a huge shift. Um, and I've even talked to, you know, I, I, um, I quoted a Republican in my book in the Senate who um, uh, also recognizes that there are a lot of issues. Uh, Ron Johnson, Wisconsin, he's kind of like this Tea Party Republican, big Trump supporter. Um, even he said, like when I was interviewing him, he sounded a lot like um, Bernie Sanders in terms of like describing the system that he thought is funda fundamentally broken and has morally, you know, he thinks it's 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 morally wrong to, uh, you know, put so much debt on young people with them not knowing um, what they're getting into. And so it, it was just really interesting to talk to a Republican who sounded a lot like the Democratic side of things in terms of describing this broken system. So I think that there is this consensus among the parties that that um, they're that the system has has problems. I don't know if they're going to agree on how to fix it, but yes, the politics have shifted. <clears throat> so let's talk about the policy recommendations that you do have in the book. And then I also want to ask you about a couple that you don't recommend. Right. So, you know, I wanted to just sort of highlight the trade-offs of, of any, any potential fix. Um, and I think ultimately what I, what I tried to point out is that if, if schools have more skin in the game, I know that's such a cliche at this point, but if they, if they share some of the risk, their, their history shows they're probably going to be less likely to award student loans to students that have no ability to repay them, or at least to award the uh, amount of money that they are in student loans to students if they have no ability to repay them. And so some type of system that would um, require more risk from schools would, history shows, likely reduce the, the amount of money that students are defaulting on. Um, one of the things that I, th I think there's a growing consensus among the parties about whether Congress should loosen bankruptcy law. Um, and so this is something that has been talked about a lot going back to the Obama administration, but hasn't exactly happened. But if you have, you know, students like the borrower that I profiled, you know, she clearly owed an amount that was far higher than her ability to repay it. You know, she only made like $75,000 as a psychologist, but she owed $120,000. And so if you, you know, um, expanding bankruptcy protection to students, it's a very high threshold right now to to um, declare bankruptcy. But if you, if you expand that, you know, you would, you would, in one sense, um, be preventing a lot of people from spending years and years and years under repayments that they'll never be able to repay. Um, yeah. And then the rest are basically, it's, it's just, you know, one of the things I try to argue is, you know, Congress just needs to clarify what its goals are. Society needs to clarify what its goals are. And if your goal is to give everyone access to the school of their choice, regardless of price, well, that's the current system. Mm -hmm. If your goal is to reduce inequality and give the neediest students who may have had a bad K-12 experience 
um, the opportunity to, um, you know, increase their skills and go to college and increase their earnings potential, then that would probably look like something where you're in increasing funding for the colleges that enroll them that are more likely to enroll them like public community college. Um, so a lot of this just has to do with like clarity of what the goals are. Um, and then I think that will point to some policy solutions um, from, from there. <clears throat> I mean, it's really interesting because, um, you know, I do a lot of work now in K-12 and there is a mirror image of the debate, I think, because in K-12 we have you know, a 90% public system, publicly funded and free to students. And then there's a small group of people that say, oh, students should carry the money with them and they should have these voucher programs and be able to attend, you know, with the school of their choice. And um, the consensus, I would say, in in the public education sphere is public money is best spent expanding access and quality for all students by strengthening the system that we have and not allowing students to take that money wherever um, they want to go. Because honestly, I mean, I think this is, this gets to why education is not really a product, right? Uh, first of all, unlike Chivas Regal, like you buy that liquor, you take it home, you taste it, you don't like it, fine. You don't buy it the next time, but that's not how it is with college. It's hard to make another choice. Number one. Number two, consumers of education by definition don't have all the information about the quality of the thing that they're, that they're going to get. It's kind of a black box. And in fact, it's co-created by the students, the value of their own education, right? Um, so how are we ever going to have a fully competitive marketplace that drives down costs? There is a lot more information that's starting to be yeah. posted online. Um, you know, my colleagues just did this great story on, on master's degree programs at these Ivy League institutions. And it showed that, you know, while master's degrees on average lead to, you know, really high paying jobs, a lot of them don't. And so for the first time, there's now data available to show that, you know, if you go to this master's film degree program at this Ivy League institution, you're actually going to owe about $160,000 to $180,000 if you're the typical graduate but you're only going to earn like 30 to $40,000 two years out. Do you really want to get into, do you really want to get in, into that much debt? Yeah. Um, I do think that there is more transparency. It's kind of hard to think that we're just now starting to see that, that information, but it is starting to come online. Um, and, uh, and, and I do think that there has been a public shift. I mean, if, if there, there was a public opinion poll that, that my employer did, a couple years back that asked the question of, you know, do you think college is worth it? And this wasn't saying, do you think college is good? Do you think college is needed? It's, do you think it's worth it? Meaning like at current prices, is it worth it? Mm -hmm. And there was a big shift away. There was a big shift of people saying no compared to how they answered that question four years earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that this notion that you have to go to college at any price um, is starting to, is a lot of people are starting to question that. It's kind of sad, um, but it's also, I think, could have some positive outcomes if people really start to rethink whether it makes sense to get into fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, or whatever, for the school that they're going to in debt. Well, I mean, is that the only option on the table? Like, you also talk about the idea of having free community college and basically changing our K twelve system to a K fourteen system in recognition of the fact that in an information society, people need more specialized training. I mean, is that something that you think um, dovetails with this call? The the thing about free community college that I wanted to make the point of, and this was something that I really started to question early on in 2012, Mm -hmm. 
after the mortgage crisis, there was this huge public discussion about whether it was moral and unethical to for banks to be giving loans to families that they had no hope of repaying. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you know, basically you had like all of these, you had a lot of loans going to people that weren't able to repay them based on their income or based on the value of the house that they were using the loan to buy. And there was the same discussion with payday lending. And yet, and so there was this consensus both within news organizations, the way we covered it, and within Congress, the way it was discussed and debated, that what banks were doing back then was really bad and it was like harming families. And then I was thinking to myself, wait a minute, as I covered student debt more and more, I was like, the government still does that every single day. Um, you know, and whether it's whether it's giving loans to, you know, and I'll just talk about some of the people that I profile in my book, you know, there's um there was a student who went to Howard um, and his great grandmother who never went to college and was poor signed up for parent plus loans so that he could go to Howard university, which is a great, which is a great school. Mm -hmm. um, but she was not going to, in all likelihood, she was not going to be able to pay that back. She, she ended up dying, um, but in all likelihood, she was not going to be able to pay that back. And it's the same thing at the community college level. I mean, I just, one of the questions that's always stuck out of my mind is like, okay, if it's bad to give loans to homeowners that are just destined to fail and have all these negative consequences ever, well, why give loans to community college students if they're in, at such a high likelihood of dropping out? Um, right. So <clears throat> I'm going to push back with you on that because yeah, yeah. again, like education is a public good and it's something that everybody has essentially not a constitutional right, but it, but potentially actually a human right, a universal human right, if we go by the UN, um, to access education to the level that they're capable of taking advantage of, right? And so I would hope that you would agree, for example, and I'll, one example is that if, you're, if you have a disability, um, the state has to pay for you to go to, to high school all the way through the age of 21, because you're allowed those extra three years to be able to take advantage of free education. So when we talk about making community college free and accessible to everyone, even students that start out behind the eight ball and perhaps need those extra years to remediate and to catch up because of their circumstances, um, is that really about, you know, it's not about taking, you wouldn't bet on that kid. You're not taking a risk that you expect to pay off, but you're saying we as a society provide this to our citizens because we believe that everybody gets the chance to gain enough education to be able to work and support themselves and also to um, uh, understand their own health care and to be able to vote and be an informed citizen. Yeah, no, and, and, and I wasn't disagreeing with any of that. And I, and I think that a lot of that I sort of support and argue in my book. The point that I'm making is that I think I don't think a lot of people realize right now that there are a lot of people who go into community college. It's not it's not the norm, but there are a lot of community college students that go in and they borrow five or ten thousand dollars. They drop out and then that debt hangs over their head for years and years and years. I mean, I have a relative who owes between twenty and thirty thousand dollars because because he went to a public community college. And so the point that the point that I was making is that our system um awards debt to people that are a very high likelihood of dropping out, which seems to be counter to what the policies are in housing. Um, and so I, I just try to point that out. I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize that 
<clears throat> realize that. And so my point is, if you to to have any discussion about how to fix problems, you really have to be aware of the nature of the problem. Yes. And I think a lot of people think of student debt. I, I hear multiple things. You know, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute, the average student debt is $30,000. Most people do get a job. And so like, why are you writing about this? Why are you calling this a crisis? Mm-hmm. And then you have other people who say, oh, well, student debt is just, you know, it's these people who went to Harvard and Princeton and they're whining and complaining and like, why should we worry about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I try to argue in my book is like, there's, it's a very broad Student debt is a very broad system that affects 43 million people. Um, and it's it's really hard to talk about what the average student is or what the typical student is. I think that there are individual problem areas that add up to a very big problem. And so, again, when we talk about free community college, I think that there's two things that I think any member of Congress or policymaker or whoever just needs to be aware of. And one is, is that our current policy is giving um, money to a lot of community college students that are adding up defaulting. I mean, most defaults, you know, by by the technical term are people who owe less than $10,000. And these are the dropouts that you're referring to. And so if you want to prevent students from if, if you want to continue to provide access to higher education, but you don't want to have a default crisis, then, you you know, one of the possible alternatives out there is to have free community college. Now, if those aren't your goals, then you're probably going to have another fix um, or another set of fixes. But, you know, my point is to sort of clarify what, you know, first clarify what your goal is. Um, and if it's to eradicate inequality and and give people who really didn't get a good K through 12 system, uh, really didn't get a good K through 12 experience, the opportunity to get an education, as mm-hmm. you say, then, you know, it does seem kind of odd that we're saying you're at such a high risk, but we want to help you. But here's ten thousand dollars that we know you're gonna that we know you're gonna default on. Right. Um, right. I, I know that that's a long-winded answer, but does does that sort of clarify what I was referring to? Um. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, it does. I think uh, we're we're at the end of our time. This has been a really yes. awesome exploration of some super complicated ideas, and really to go back to kind of who we are as a nation, right? And who we, what we owe each other as citizens, not to mention, you know, one of the biggest financial um, kind of boondoggles that the federal government's ever backed into. So I encourage people to check out Josh's book and his writing in the Wall Street Journal. And it's been a lot of fun, Josh. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Book Notes Plus podcast. This week, a selection of calls into C-SPAN from September 12th, the day after the terrorist attacks. They include eyewitness accounts to the attacks in New York City.